Hi there, and welcome to the Beatle Brothers Podcast. Brian and Joe Flynn are from Ireland. They're lifelong Beatles fans. In this series of podcasts, they reflect on the life and times, the influence and the immortal music of the Fab Four. This is an essential listen for all fans of the Beatles. Hello there, and you're very welcome to the first in a series of podcasts called The Beatle Brothers. My name is Brian Flynn, and I'm joined in these podcasts by my brother, Joe. That's why we're called The Beatle Brothers. We're geniuses at names. Now, what we're going to be doing, we're both, by the way, huge Beatle fans, have been since we were kids. We've explored everything Beatle-related, tours, T-shirts, everything, all the records, obviously. And uh, we're going to be talking about their career and our, our ideas about them. And uh, the Beatles, of course, formed in 1957 when John met Paul. But they were known then, they were then known as the Quarrymen, and they had several names. They didn't really get going. They, they hung around Liverpool for about a year and a half with no gigs or anything. They were joined by George Harrison. They didn't get going, Joe, I think it's fair to say, until they went to Hamburg. Well, how you doing, bro? <clears throat> um, and how you doing to anybody who's joining us for these chats? Good to have you. No, you're perfectly right. Um, in the late 1950s, they, they, they had the nucleus of the band at that stage, which is they had three people. But actually, they weren't doing much. Um, and it's, it's probably fair to say that had they not gone to Hamburg, they may well have disintegrated at that stage. But they didn't. They were lucky enough and they, they had the nerve to go. Alan Williams took them over to Hamburg to play in the very seedy areas of, of, uh, of the city, the Ripperband and places like that. And I mean, when you talk about that today, you can imagine parents having nightmares about their children. And that's really all they were, being over in a place like that, especially unsupervised. But Hamburg was mighty for the Beatles because it taught them a lot of things and it could have gone either way if we're honest about it. Um, a situation where they were put into where they were playing very long hours, six days a week, um, it could have either made or, break, or broke them and luckily enough it made them, it, it turned them into a very... Did it, did it bond, uh, bond them together in a way they mightn't have done at home when they'd be all living with their parents and all that? So. Absolutely. That's, that's the whole point I'm trying to make, that they did become a unit. They, be, they, they, they became a gang, actually. They became John Lennon's gang. Um, but they now, when, you see, when you say they, that's three of them. I don't oh, think that, their drummer at the time was Pete Best. He wasn't part of the gang. No, that's very true. He wasn't. Uh, it, it's a good point and was never going to be. And, and that's quite apart from the questions and the question mark that always existed about his actual drumming. But... They did improve, apart from bonding, they also improved as musicians. I think you'll agree, you play music. You, you can't play for six hours, six days a week without improving uh, as a musician. No, Maybe not no, no. They, tied, they, they, they got tied. It was, it was, it was a, a, a career rehearsal, if you like. They, 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 got, they got tied. Uh, John learned how to play guitar far better than he had originally. They all improved on, guitar, on, on their instruments. Um, they they also did have uh, they they also got into songwriting. Then Paul had been songwriting, and when John saw that he he was doing this, they both got into it. The stuff they did was primitive early on, but the but the the germ, shall we say, or the gem, or whatever you want to call it, was there. And um, they also, it's worth pointing out that they did on one or two occasions have another drummer sit in with them, Ringo Starr, who was playing with Rory Storm's band over in, in Hamburg. So they had played with Ringo and they realised how good it could be with him before they even came back to Liverpool. So would you say that, that Ringo, Ringo's place in the Beatles was decided on before they actually left Hamburg? Oh yeah, I would indeed, big time. I mean, Paul has gone on record as saying that Ringo sat in with them one night, Pete wasn't available. 
and immediately they heard him swinging behind them. They knew that's what that was the, the vital element they were missing. Uh, he was, uh, but as as important as his drumming, which was perfect drumming for for that particular band, as important as that was his, the fact that he had their kind of humour. He came up with these great comments. They all loved him. They got on great with him. He was a great laugh. He agreed to do the hairstyle that they had adopted, the, the swept forward hairstyle. He was more amenable. He was one of the gang, whereas Pete was always going to be a little bit more uh, of a loner. Plus, Ringo was a far better drummer. So, yeah, he was earmarked and they, they wanted him or whatever they, they've ever said. My opinion is that from the time they met him in Hamburg, they knew he was the guy they wanted. And speaking of that, you made reference there to the hairstyle, which became very important in the next four years. But that, it, that originated not from them. There was, that was another influence, wasn't it, that they met in, in Hamburg? It was, yeah, after Kirchner and Klaus Burman, uh, two, two students that they met there. And indeed, Klaus would, would come into their story later on as well, because Klaus, uh, they were studying art, but Klaus uh, became a musician and a really good musician. And... Uh, they Manfred Mann, didn't he? he? Sorry, he what? played with Manfred Mann, did he not? He played with Manfred Mann for years, yeah, he did. And he played, he, he became a session musician. He's, he's very, you know that famous uh, little piece of bass at the beginning of Carly Simon, You're So Vain. That's him. Like, he does stuff like that. But he was, yeah. But he, as, as, as much as music, uh, the Klaus and, and Astrid and their gang were an influence on the Beatles in books, in culture in general. And they sort of, Almost, if you like, you could put it, they show them how to use their knife and fork properly. You know, that kind of way. I know, yeah. Anyway, look, they, they, the fact is they cut their chops big time in, Liverpool, in in Hamburg. And it was very good to them. And they came back. They were called a powerhouse rock and roll band when they came back to Liverpool. So they were very together. But the truth is they didn't have an awful lot going for them. I mean, they, they had didn't have... They didn't have an awful lot going for them. But uh, they were lucky enough at that particular time to meet Brian Epstein who became their manager and got them gigs, got them television, changed their image, um, um, uh, improved their discipline on stage, everything else like that. And most important of all, uh, got them a recording contract. Eventually, after being turned down, they were turned down by Decca Records and by several others, actually. And uh, uh, eventually they were uh, taken on by EMI, who sort of, handed them off to, to one of their staff producers, a guy called George Martin, who, of course, became a very, very important part of the story. In fact, the old cliche about who's the fifth Beatle, I, I always hate that when I hear it because there were only four. But if anyone would have been considered for it, it would have to be George Martin. He was the only one that was allowed into the studio right through the career, apart from them. Well, that's true. I wouldn't argue at all. Uh, and we're talking a minute about George, George Martin's influence. Um, I, I, I'm always a little sceptical, though, Brian, about, about uh, how, how influential Brian Epstein was in the, in the history of the Beatles and how much he contributed. And without being hard on the guy, my, my suspicion is, is based on the fact that I, I think he, he sort of used the, the Beatles as a... Maybe a plaything is too, is too strong a way of putting it, but he, he saw that there was talent there, but... He, he didn't help to develop the talent. And, and I know you say he cleaned them up and he did a course and he got them some television work. But I mean, any manager, not that there were that many at the time, but any manager would have done the same thing. I mean, that was the first place you start with this. With this. And remember that Lennon, all his career, um, 
resented that and and you know he was sorry that he he did clean up though that might have been just john that, but that is that is so typical of it this is the thing about lennon that, that i don't really like i won't go into it now in detail but he he saw he was sorry for this and he was sorry for that and he thought he was tougher but he went along with all these things you wear if you join the army put the boots on whatever the cliche is i don't think that the, this thing about lennon was too tough to 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 change his his image he did that's the point. What he wanted to do is beside the point. Paul never whinged about that. He changed it as well. And Brian Epstein was a good enough manager. The point is, we're looking back now through a, a, a long, long uh, lens at all of this. And we know of people like Paul McGuinness with you too. We know of Michael Jackson's manager and whatever his name was. We know of Peter Grant with Led Zeppelin, all these guys. Yeah, but that's all afterwards. This was none of that had happened, none of them could be seen. Brian Epstein, when he took them on, he had no idea what the 60s were going to be. Nothing. He didn't know what was happening. So as he did as much as he could, he was a an old-fashioned manager, but he was as good as they could have probably got at that point. Yeah, but but uh, and as you say, quite rightly, he did he did uh, make the introduction to George Martin, and George Martin became I would agree with you. He was the fifth Beatle, if there is such a thing. I, I, I don't like people there isn't. anybody. There is only four Beatles. But hmm. he was perhaps the fifth Beatle in the sense that he did affect their music. And it was all about the music. It has to always be about the music. And he was, he was influential in the early stages. And when I say early, I mean, the, say, the first through to the fifth album, to the end of yeah. hell, which I regard as their sort of, I call it their mop top period. Some great songs, some great albums, uh, like Hard Day's Night in there. Some not but, so uh, Hard Day's Night is in there, and a lot of people, uh, and I would be one of them, would, would, would argue that it could be seen as their best album. You see, it's, 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 it's kind of thrown away. If you see a list of Beatles albums, it's thrown away because it's so early on, and the songs were very lyrically naive on it. But Jesus, they were great songs. Absolutely brilliant songs. And, and it, was a, it was an album of, way ahead of its time in that, it had 14 tracks, I think, 13 or 14, whatever it was. They were all written by Lennon and McCartney. Didn't happen. Nobody, Dylan, was that apart, nobody else was doing anything like that. No band in the world was doing that. So they were, they, they, they were ahead of their time from the get-go. Yeah, and, and, and people talk about the various aspects of their, their influence. And that's, that's an aspect of their influence that people don't often mention, which was... Can you imagine all the young songwriters in England at the time, guys like like uh, Ray Davis and, and even the even the two Stones, um, and they were looking at these guys doing this, and they would have said, "Well, if these guys can do it from Liverpool, why can't why can't we do that?" Well, yeah, that's that's exactly why the Stones started to write because they didn't have a they didn't have a single, and they met Paul and John, and Paul and John had a bit of a song called "I Want to Be Your Man," kind of a throwaway song. And they said, yeah, that sounds like the kind of stuff we could do. So they said, well, we haven't finished. Give us a second. They went and sat in a corner and finished it. And particularly Mick Jagger was a very shrewd, scheming kind of a businessy type guy anyway. When he saw that that could be done, he figured they would do the same. And eventually they became really, really, they, they came out with a whole string of great singles themselves. Did, yeah. mm -hmm. but, but always, always, always in the shadow of the Beatles. But it's true to say, would you agree with me when I say that George Martin's influence, while it was certainly there, and it was, and it, it, he built up his relationship, which started in a very comical way, if you remember back, that, that these cheeky guys coming down from Liverpool, um, and they weren't in awe of George Martin in the slightest. Um, and, and yet, he did have an influence on their early albums, but 
his real influence, would you agree, happened in the period when they released the three albums, Rubber Soul Revolver and the seminal uh, Sgt. Pepper. He was most... I would agree. I would agree. And it, what happened there is that uh, the, the three albums you mentioned are very interesting, Rubber Soul, Revolver and Pepper, because <laughs> Rubber Soul is the first of the three of those, chronologically. The Beatles came off the road at that part. They played their last gig in, what was it, uh, August, September, 1966. Okay, so yeah. they, they, uh, when they, they went to do Rubber Soul, something very unusual had happened for them. They had plenty of time. They didn't have to go on a tour. They weren't, like they recorded, they recorded Hard Day's Night on the Hoof, running. And, and they, they, the song Hard Day's Night, it's hard to believe now, but Richard Lester, the, the director of the movie, when they finally came up with, with a, a title, and they were having trouble with that, but Ringo made a comment. And they immediately knew it was a great title. He said, well, we have to record a song tomorrow with that title in it. You have to write a song called Hard Day's Night. They went home and John wrote the song overnight and they recorded it the next day. Yeah, phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Inside, between 24 hours, have, uh, the idea having been mentioned, the song was recorded. Yeah. So anyway, uh, uh, but to go back to George Martin, yeah, when they, when they went into the studio to do, to do uh, Rubber Soul, they had the luxury of not, none, of this, none of that stuff going on. They had lots of time. And by now, EMI realized that these guys were making so much money and had potential to make so much that they, they let them have the studio as long as they like. Great studio, although, mind you, still only a four-track set up. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and, and they said, listen, George Martin, they speak your language, you speak theirs, go for it. Now, they were meeting in a kind of a weird way. George, George was a, a classically trained musician. The Beatles weren't, obviously, but they had that innate genius that he recognised. So each appreciated and recognised what the other brought to the table. There were a marriage made in heaven that way, and away they went. And they made three great albums, Rubber Soul, Revolver, and Sgt. Pepper, in that sort of a rush of creativity in the mid-period of the 60s. Yeah, they did, and and I know. That's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Yeah, and, and, and I know you are because we've talked about this obviously many times, and you regard that that period as the as the ultimate. I am I'm a bit hesitant about that, I have to say, because I've always been of the of the opinion that the Beatles, the whole the whole Pepper thing, um, it was a sort of I would regard it in a way as a blot on their landscape because. Uh, it was so different than anything else they did. I wouldn't regard it, by the way, as their best album at all. But, but in other podcasts, we'll 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 talk about that in more detail. Um, I mean, I, if you regard those three albums and that period as their as their best, then it's difficult to justify that when you see that the the following, the what, what remained of their career, and it was in the years when they were disintegrating as a group. There's no doubt about that, but. It started, that period started with the White Album, which to me, I know you don't agree, but to me, the White Album is the best album that they, they ever released. Um, there was still a lot of, a lot of life left uh, in a band that was effectively breaking up, wasn't there? Yeah, there was. You see, the thing is, uh, uh, it's not that I don't agree. I mean, they're all great albums. That's, this is what we're, this is why we're all Beatles fans. But uh, I think the three albums that we mentioned, Rubber Soul, Revolver and Pepper, they were sort of at their, at, their, at their creative peak as a band, as, a, as particularly with Lennon and McCartney as a duo. Whereas the other albums, the White Album, Abbey Road and, and uh, Let It Be, they're great albums. Nobody's arguing with that, especially the White Album. But, but it was a different setup. As you said, they were sort of disintegrating. It, it was never the same band creativity thing as they had 
in the first three, in the, in the mid-period album, because by then it was each guy doing his own song with the band helping him out and being his session musicians to a large extent. Yeah, well, I, few- I, would, I would argue that with you, man, because um, to be honest about it, the Pepper, the Sergeant Pepper, the whole Sergeant Pepper project was, was Paul McCartney. And, and I, I, I'm not taken from it or him for that, because I think that without Paul McCartney at that period in the band, after the death of Brian Epstein, I think the band could easily have broken up without him. Um, but he, it, it, George, George Harrison didn't take a huge part in Sgt. Pepper. John certainly went along, but to be honest, John was in a haze at that stage uh, and was very subdued. Uh, Paul was the ringmaster. He was the musical director. Um, so, you know, were they so much a unit at that stage? I, I, uh, they were. They were. I mean, if you look at it, like, I, I, if, in an effort to argue that, let me just say, <clears throat> it was Paul's idea and he wrote most of the songs. But if you look at side one, you have uh, you have the Sergeant Pepper. They all sing on that, even though it's Paul's song. Then you have A Little Help, My Friends, where Ringo sings it. But you got lovely input from Paul and John vocally. Then you have Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which is a great Paul, about John song, really good one. Then you have two great Paul tracks, uh, uh, Getting Better and Fixing a Hole, right? Yeah, no, that's true. There's, there's, there's no doubt about it, but I'm, I'm just making the point that I, I think that McCartney was more the, the, the director of Sgt. Pepper than the rest of them were. Uh, I think it was a, a Paul-type project, and the music on it was more Paul. There, w- there wasn't the biting edge that, that Lennon produced in his earlier career or certainly produced later in the career of both the Beatles with, uh, and, and even in his solo work, which was dismal anyway. But no, no, I mean, it was, it was a good period. It's just I, I, I think that the White Album period in particular and also Abbey Road, I mean, you could say that they had matured as musicians and that they had matured as young men. They had turned into, into grown-ups at that period, but it's still, it's still tremendous music. But perhaps in the future, we could, we could, we could take a look at it. Well, we will take a look in more detail at things like that. Well, I'll tell, tell you what we could do, for instance. This is only a thought. You mentioned we were talking about the White Album came up quite a lot there, and it's an album that divides people. A lot of people say it's the best Beatles album ever. Others hate it because of, of, of the, the track, the Revolution 9 track. <clears throat> George Martin, of whom we have spoken, has, uh, uh, did say on one occasion that he thought the White Album would be a magnificent album had it been a single album. In other words, as you know, the White Album was a double album, but he reckoned it would have made a great single album. Why don't we, in the next podcast, try to put the White Album, take, uh, choose enough tracks to make a single album out of the tracks on it? I think there are 30 tracks on the White Album. Let's choose 15 and make out a single album. Yeah, it's a great idea, actually. We'll try and hone it. We'll try and produce that single album that George Martin spoke about. As only we can. Sounds so like a plan. Sounds like a plan. Okay, nice talking with you. Take care, bro. Take care.